Hey Siri, remind me to pick up milk on the way home. Hey Siri, remind me about ballet practice at 5 p.m. Hey Siri, remind me to ask mom if I can borrow her car for Friday. Hey Siri, remind me to call the body shop. Hey Siri, remind me to take out the trash tonight. Siri, hey Siri, hey Siri, hey Siri, hey Siri, Siri, We're going to continue our Ephesians message series today. Uh, if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Ephesians chapter four. Uh, if you've got your app, you can open the YouVersion Bible app. Um, a cool feature on there is if you open that Bible app and in the bottom right-hand corner, it's three or four lines. Uh, click there, it says more. If you click that and then click the tab that says events, um, you can pull up Northwood Church, come to the Gulfport location. If you don't realize you're in Gulfport, welcome, you are in Gulfport. We do have a Long Beach and a Wiggins location. And next year at some point, we will have an Ocean Spring location, which we are super excited about as well. Yeah. And even if you're joining us online or on Facebook, uh, we're honored that you're here, but we're going to be in Ephesians chapter four, uh, verse 17 through 32. Um, this, this book, it's really a letter that Paul wrote to the church. Uh, we've put it into six chapters. It's really a very small book. It's 155 verses and it is heavy on the gospel. He is continually and consistently talking about the gospel. The first two and a half chapters of Ephesians um, are all about who we are in Christ, about what Jesus has done for us, that it's nothing that we've done to earn or gain or attain salvation, but it's what God did through his son Jesus that has brought us good news. God gospel defined as good news. And that's what two and a half chapters are. And then the end of chapter three is Paul, uh, saying a prayer for us to have the power of God, like Pastor Jordan was just sharing about, that the power of God would be alive and active inside of us and the different things that that adds to our life and what it actually gives us the power to live out. And then the second part of Ephesians is how do we actually live out this new life now? What are we supposed to do? Like, how do we act? You know, a lot of times we like just hearing like a vague statement because vague doesn't get precise and pointed at us. We're cool with just blanket statements. But Paul gets very detailed and very pointed uh, in this letter. And that's really where we're at in Ephesians chapter 4, again, starting in verse 17. Uh, we're going to answer two questions today. Uh, the first question is going to be, what is your new identity? What is your identity? And then once we answer that question, we're going to say, okay, how do we live this thing out now? How are we going to live this out? So let's pray and we're going to dive into it. God, I thank you. God, I thank you for the opportunity to communicate your word so God, I pray that that's exactly what would take place. God, you knew what you wanted your church to hear when you spoke Ephesians into the heart of Paul and he wrote it down. So God, I pray that uh, that, that message that you wanted the church to hear would be the exact message we hear today. God, that you'd speak to us. God, if any of our hearts would be hardened, God, that you would soften them. God, that we might hear from you. God, God we're not praying for just an inspirational speech, God, that doesn't change anything. God, we're praying for something deep inside of us. So God, we open our lives up to you. And God, we say, speak to us. And God, as you speak to us, we will respond to you. We love you and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So this letter is written to the church. Um, there's a lot of mentions in Ephesians and even today about uh, people who are far from God and talking about the lifestyle of those who are far from God. But you need to re be reminded and just, just recall that Paul is writing to 
people just like us, to believers. And he's not only reminding us of our identity, who we are, but now what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live this thing out as believers. And he starts uh, for today with us in verse 17. He says, now this I say and I testify in the Lord. He's, He's charging us. It's not like a suggestion. It is a charge. He's saying, this is what I'm saying, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's saying, no longer live like those who are far from God, that are godless, that are, are pagans. He says, don't walk as Gentiles do. He says, in the futility of their minds. That word futility means in the pointlessness, in the uselessness of their minds. Before we came to Christ, we thought our actions, the way we were living, what we were doing was taking us in a certain direction. We had aspirations. We had, we had dreams. We said, this is where my actions are leading me to. This is what my life is taking me to. And he's saying, apart from God, it is completely pointless. It's futile. And isn't that how our minds actually are apart from Christ? He continues by saying, they are darkened in their understanding. Our minds are darkened. We just don't get it. He says, we're alienated from the life of God, far from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. He says, this is due to their hardness of heart, the center of their being, It's not talking about the the organ that's pumping blood. It's talking about the center of who we are. He's saying, if you can address the center of who you are, that hardened heart, these other things are going to unlock and you'll begin to be able to change these different outflows of the person that you, the way you think, the way you act. But he's saying, if you are godless, that is impossible to do. At the very best, it's modifying your behavior, but it's not transforming your life. And he says, we've got to get focused on this. You can't continue down the same path you've always gone before you were with Christ, before you were found in Christ. He's saying, break the pattern. And the way he said to do that was addressing the heart first. It's a lot like um, if you've got an issue with a bill, like you're trying to get something changed or that type of thing, and you you call that 1-800 number, and the first person you get, you know they're not going to help you. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's like, come on. Come on, yeah, like I got taught recently by a friend, they said, just instantly ask for the manager. Like, hey, nice to meet you, my name is Micah. Can I talk to your manager? You haven't done anything, but it's like elevating the thing. It's saying, guys, talk to the manager of your life. Deal with the manager that can actually do something. And the manager is the center of your being, the heart issue. He's saying, let's change that. You know what's amazing is we try to think or change the way we think, and it's so difficult to do because we haven't addressed this side right here yet. And the Bible was clear about this. Right now, scientists are catching up to what the Bible has already said. Scientists, neuroscientists are saying this. It's saying the longer um, that you do positive or negative patterns, the longer that you are consistent in your behavior, what it's going to do is going to produce these neurological pathways of the way that you think. The, The longer you participate in certain things, these grooves in your mind and in the way that you approach life become deeper and deeper ingrained in who you are. And the deeper that that rut is, the more likely you are to walk down that path. And some of us are dealing with deep grooves in our brain that Paul is instructing us to say, stop living like that. But we've got this deep rooted issue inside of our thinking, which then produces actions outside of our thinking. He's saying the only way you can actually change this 
is through talking to the manager, the heart. The way you think determines how you act and our identity shapes the way that we think. Who we are in Christ. And this is just the way that things go. And the longer we are left to ourselves apart from God, godless and pagan, the longer that we're left to that side, we go further and further and further down this pattern of distance, of darkening and hardening and alienated from the life of God. And it is dangerous. The reality is, and you'll see it on the screen, a consensus of our culture shows the progression of futility in our thought and our deed. It just keeps going and going and going, and we can't do a thing about it. And Paul knew that. Paul says in verse 19, he says, they, talking about the godless, saying who can't be like that anymore, he says, they have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But living a callous life or having a callous over your heart, that hardened heart is very, very dangerous. A callous means you can't feel anything where you're actually supposed to feel. And it says that apart from Christ, we actually, by nature, have a callous. We don't know. And we walk around this life not knowing that we're hardened to the things of God, which takes a miracle to soften a hardened heart. Thank God that our God is in the miracle business. God comes to this earth in the form of his son, Jesus. He dies a criminal's death, a sinner's death. The price, our hardened heart is due to sin. Christ pays the price for our sin so that our hearts can be softened. And Paul is talking about this. The amazing thing is, though, that we can come to Christ and we can know him as savior of our life and never allow him to be savior of our behavior. And Paul is calling us to scrape off this callus. Cut it off. You ever seen a video of a callus? Some of you have done it. It's nasty. It's gross. It's not painful. Why? Because it's dead. He's saying scrape this thing off. And what he's doing is he's saying Godless sinners are callous, but you who are close to God, you're no longer darkened in your understanding. You're no longer alienated from the life of God. You're close to him, and because of that, your heart can be soft. He says all that to say that is not the way that you learned Christ. He's saying, hey guys, you're not like that anymore. How could Paul so definitively say, that's not the way that you actually learned Christ? It's because this was a church that he planted. He knew the teachings that were taking place. He knew the way that this church was learning who Christ was. He knew the fundamental teachings that were going in the congregation, in the church itself. He knew the things that were being taught. He said, that's not how you learned Christ. But he also knew that the Holy Spirit, when Jesus ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit descended into earth. And now he was amongst his people, leading, guiding, correcting, instructing, them, leading them in Christ. He's, Paul's saying, that's not the way that you learned Christ. And then he says, assuming, <laughs> I mean, actually assuming that you've heard that you've attended, that you've paid attention, assuming that you've heard about him and you were taught in him. And then he says, guys, the truth is in Jesus. That's where the truth actually 
is. So he says all of that to get to this moment. He's constantly anchoring us in the gospel. And he's saying, guys, that's not who you are any longer. In verse 22, he says, so because of all that, put off your old self. That old self, that one that's been crucified with Christ, that one that's no longer alive, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. The word picture that it paints here is that it's dead and it's decaying. That old man is decaying. He's saying, stop putting it back on. Don't be like that any longer. He says, and instead of, instead of putting that old person on, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and, and those grooves. Hit refresh on your mind. Let that thing change in your understanding. And how do you do that? It's putting on the new self. He's saying, put off and put on. Put on the new self, the one that's resurrected with Christ which was created after the likeness or the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's saying, be who you now are. Stop acting like that old thing that is no longer alive that's actually decaying now. He said, be who you now are, not who you once were. Replace the old with the new. You got an old pair of jeans that you just love. How many of you got that one pair of jeans that your spouse hates but you love? Okay, two of you. Cool, you'll get this. <laughs> Everyone else, just hang on. You got those old jeans, and it's, it's, it's the jeans that you know it's, they're not the best, but they just feel right. Like, you like the way they feel. They, they're just, it's what you've always had. It's your default. It's your go-to. I love the spouses that are elbowing each other right now. <laughs> You're wearing them right now. <laughs> the old jeans that you might like, that might feel right, that you're comfortable in, or just when you don't know what to do, you just go back into those. He's saying, don't live that type of life any longer. He's saying, Guys, you can be saved and not be transformed. And he's saying, guys, put the new self on. You've got to understand this. Paul is, is emphatically saying that when Christ calls us to himself, it's always a call to leave the world, to leave the old genes, to die to self, and to actually live for God. Paul is emphasizing this heavily, and he's saying, guys, you are not the old you anymore. He's saying, your identity is that you are a brand new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. You don't have to be that any longer because you're not that any longer. He says, you've got a brand new identity. And when you know who you are, when you know that you know in the center of your being that you are a child of God, that will transform the way that you live. Why? Because it's who you are and who you are influences and affects and changes the way that you live. So then Paul starts to actually talk about how we live out our new identity. 
And again, I said it a moment ago, most of us are cool with being super vague because super vague doesn't hurt too bad. But Paul addresses his church and my prayer is that you allow the Holy Spirit to address your life of how you now live out your new identity very specifically. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, to the center of your being, not the center, 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 could be a sinner. He'll address that too. <laughs> Allow him to speak to you that you might respond to him. Paul just introduced this thought of putting off and putting on. And I want to say it like this. You've got to fall in love with the idea of putting something on. And when we fall in love with the idea of putting on the new, by nature, the old is going to fall off. It's going to be put off. John Stott, who's a theologian, said this. He says, it's because we have already put off our old nature in that decisive act of repentance called conversion. He says that we can logically be commanded to put away all these practices which belong to the old, rejective, rejected life. So we're going to put on, and I believe that when we love this, we're going to by nature put off. Ephesians 4.25 says this, therefore, so because of everything that I've just said, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. He's talking about with each other. Speak the truth with other believers, for we are members one of another. He says, replace lying with loving the truth. Replace lying. Stop lying. No more lying. Please stop lying. This is what he's saying right here. He is, he is emphasizing the need to no longer lie inside the church. We're like, what? In the church? That church was messed up back then that people would lie in the church? We don't do that. My goodness, who would ever think we would have liars inside. My kids say liars are friars. Thank you. Paul was, you like that one. If that's all you got, uh, man, I'm a pathetic communicator. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You can quote that one. You take credit for it though. <laughs> so Paul is, is, Stepping in the ring with this, this thought that existed in society then, because most of us would agree today that lying is wrong. We shouldn't lie. Even though our actions might not follow that belief, we would all agree that lying is wrong to do. In that day, world leaders and thought-provoking people like Plato and Menander, like some of these guys that from a couple hundred years before this letter is being written to a couple hundred years after actually said, it's not bad to lie. And this is what was infiltrating society. Young, not so young. Everyone was hearing this thought that it's not that bad to lie. Menander said this. He said, a lie. This is a teacher. I said, a lie is better than a hurtful truth. Mm. Just 15 verses ago, I think, we talked about truthing in love. You remember that last week? This is just a few sentences later in the letter. Paul is stepping in the ring against liars. He's saying, guys, even if it hurts, you're still supposed to tell the truth. 
And what happens oftentimes is this people-pleasing side of who we are tries to come alive, and it's in the form of sensitivity and softness and culturally relevant. And we say, we can't say anything that's going to hurt anybody. What if it's the truth? And what if the truth will temporarily sting but will save their life? This thought is going into society saying, if it's a hurtful truth, you might not need to say it. Plato himself, who is still quoted all throughout society, said this. He may lie who knows how to do it in a suitable time. So in the same way that we talked about the right time to tell the truth, because it's not always best to tell the truth just when your anger and emotions are all in it. But Plato is saying, guys, you can tell a lie if you're good at it. All the liars in here are like, yeah. <laughs> he says, do it in a suitable time. And Paul is stepping up saying, let it not be so among us. He said, we're going to truth. We're going to do it in love because you can tell the truth without love and you can abuse people and you can love people without the truth and you neglect people. But he's saying, combine truth and love and let's grow and let's mature together. This is what Paul is saying there. He's stepping up and he's going after it. By the way, half truths are full lies. I just said, just a little lie, <laughs> just a little lie. It just, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was just a fabrication. White lie, white lie is bad lie. The Bible talks about the truth being the light and it talks about dishonesty being darkness. And I believe that when you live in the light, you do not need to fear of what's going to come out in the dark because there's nothing there. How nice would it be if who we really were was just out there? And guys, that goes for us among here. He's talking to the church. You know, sometimes you need a friend that you can be honest with, that you can be truthful with. And when they talk to you, you don't just say, all oh, glory to God, everything's good. Sometimes you can say, I am really tired and I, I don't know what I'm going to do next. If you don't have that friend in your life, and if you're not that friend in your life, then we're not fulfilling what the scripture are actually calling us to do as Christ-like community. He says, stop lying. Then he says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. He says, put off unrighteous anger and replace it with righteous anger. He says, there is a holy anger that exists and holy anger exists against sin. He says, be angry at what makes God angry. It's a great study. What makes God angry? When you begin to study the word and say, what actually makes God angry? It becomes remarkably clear that it's a little bit different than what makes man angry. God gets angry when his goodness is perverted. When something that he creates as good is contorted into bad or misused or abused. Life, and ah, life isn't that big of a deal. No, we don't need it. God gifts stuff to us and it's in his goodness and then it gets contorted. He says it's the turning of wrong that he made right. God calls this evil and evil twists and disfigures. It distorts God's glory. There's a story in Mark chapter three about Jesus and there was this, this gift that God gave instructed to man called the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to rest, to enjoy, to worship, to thank God for life and God implemented it to his people so that they could experience rest. 
Well, mankind got their hands on it, and in the form of some religious leaders in those times, which were, we call them Pharisees. We look at Pharisees now and we say, ooh, they're bad, but in that day, they were just religious leaders. That's who they were. Religious leaders got their hands on the Sabbath and said, put a bunch of rules around it, a bunch of stipulations, and the story in Mark chapter three goes like this. It's on the Sabbath, the day that everybody was supposed to rest, not do any work, not do anything. And Jesus comes uh, in, in, into the environment where there's a man with a withered hand. And he says, I want to heal this guy. And it says the religious leaders just sat there and looked at him. Like, what's he going to do? Is he going to break the Sabbath? Is he going to break the rule right there? And it says that he looks at the man and he makes a decision to, to heal the man on the Sabbath. But what takes place in this moment, we see God, we see Jesus express anger. It says, and he looked, this is Jesus. He looked around at them, at the religious leaders with anger, with anger. You don't see it on the screens behind me, but listen to this because we're like, all right, God got angry through Jesus is angry right here. I love it. I can get angry. But then it says why he got angry. He says he was grieved at the hardness of their heart. It wasn't even the action attached to anger. It was at the hardness of their heart. What's the motivation of your anger? Is it truly the sin side? Is it truly the side that's grieving Christ, the side that, that hurts God, or is the thing that makes you angry the fact that it's just an inconvenience? Is it an inconvenience? We get angry at friends or family, or we get angry at each other because they're inconveniencing us, or they're making us look bad, or, or it's a, I just don't want to deal with it, so I'm angry about it, and it's totally different. Just a side note, the scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And we love that because that means we can fight and we got to fight before sunrise comes. Don't let the sun go down on your righteous anger. I believe oftentimes the sun needs to go down on unrighteous anger because sometimes when you just let it simmer a little bit, when you let it slow down, you realize it's not that big of a deal. That's not a permission to sweep it under the rug, but it is a permission to let your emotions settle. That's why in one of the paraphrases in Psalm 37, uh, the author says this. He says, bridle your anger, like bridle it, like hold it back. He says, trash your wrath, cool your pipes, <laughs> cool your pipes, that means like when you're fiery, like you feel like your head's hot and you're like, ah, I want to punch through the wall or whatever you do. Or I want to scream. I want to verbally abuse. I want to physically abuse. I want to take out this anger. He says, cool your pipes because it only makes things worse. It only makes it worse. How can you cool your pipes? Prayer is an incredible tool. And when you're feeling that thing and it's unrighteous anger, or even if it's righteous anger, I, I don't think you can ever go wrong with praying and saying, God, what do I do with this? God, help me in this moment. And you don't manipulate with verbal, with high volume prayer to your family. Parents are really good at this. You start to pray out loud at your kid, but you're actually just correcting your kid with a high level of, you guys know what I'm talking about. God, I pray for this kid. Man, I don't like him. God, I, I don't know if you even like them because they're, they're disobeying. They're lying. God, they're not doing the dishes and, and I'm super mad at them. You got to talk with a country accent when you get mad too because God loves it. 
What would happen if you sat down with your child or your spouse or your child sat down with you and said, can we pray about this instead of blowing up on each other? It'd reposition your heart. Mankind is famous for elevating anger and it's got different explosions attached to it. Some of our explosions are frustration and rage and punching. And I believe some of the most explosive anger is silence. And we are just by default explosive in anger. But when we are explosive in anger, God is explosive in mercy. It's who he is. I'm thankful that God is way more merciful than people are. The psalmist said, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and he's abundant in love. Paul continues instructing and needling down into the church, the group of believers, and he says this. He says, let the thief, the thief no longer steal. The thief who is now a believer, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He says, replace stealing with actually loving to work. And then when you work hard, you earn stuff and then you give generously. Countercultural to a thief. In that world right there, you had two different mindsets. And in this world, we have two different mindsets. You had the Robin Hood mentality that was steal from the rich and give to the poor. And he's saying, stop. He's saying, it's not the right thing to do. Don't do that. It's going to, it's not reflecting Christ. But then you had the Zacchaeus mentality. (laughs) Steal from the poor and I'm going to be rich. And he's saying both are wrong. He's saying, stop stealing. Stealing is way bigger than sticking your hand into a cash register and putting it in your pocket when no one's looking, although that is stealing. Stealing is defrauding. It's manipulating with your words for personal gain. It's it's taking advantage of certain things, taking advantage of systems that are in place so that you can gain monetarily when you do not have to. He's saying it's stealing. Dishonest people do not fear God. They might fear man a little bit if they get caught. Dishonest people don't understand that they're not hiding something from God. God sees everything. And he's saying, stop stealing. Some of you might need to stop stealing. Some of you that have just, that's just been your life. It's just how you've operated for so long. That's so deeply rooted. Like there are some people in this room that you have stolen for so long that you don't know how you will survive without stealing. Zacchaeus is an incredible story to go study. You need a face-to-face encounter with Christ. And then you begin to work on repaying that thing that you've stolen, repaying and multiplying that repayment structure. It's called restitution. It's called, it's called making right what was made wrong. And it is a heck of a reflection of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in your life. He says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Like none of it. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. Let words that come out of your mouth instead of tear down, let them build up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those 
who hear. He says, no longer can we have obscene conversations. No longer can the words of our mouth, maybe it's a good question to ask, are the words that come out of my mouth pleasing to God? What is my language? What is my talk, my conversation? Not just in church. Your Christianity is not limited to what you do between 1045 and 1215. If that's your definition of Christianity, then you have completely downplayed and missed the gospel. What is your life, your words, the outflow of who you are to the public, to people? What's your social media look like? I, taught, I did social media like I'm actually on the computer. Nobody does social media on the computer. You do it on your phone. Corrupt talk can be images you post. Corrupt talk can be opinions that you share. What's coming out of you through your language? He's saying, let it build up instead of tear down. Let it edify instead of destroy. Replace corrupt talk with edifying talk with edifying language. The word picture that this word gives in Greek is like, don't let your words be like rotten fruit. Don't just throw it out. It's not going to, it's not nourishing to anybody. And isn't it amazing that when one piece of rotten fruit gets thrown out there, it just begins to spoil other things around it, man. It would be terrible if you got a, a complete view of your words and the effect of your words and you realize that the words that you say inside your house to those who are closest to you are actually destroying and rotting the fabric of your family. What if you walked in and began to speak life, began to speak Christ, began to speak hope and life? I can tell you this, that over a period of time, because Jesus is not a one-hit wonder that he walks in and changes everything in just a moment. He changes the heart of mankind, but sometimes you've destroyed things for a lifetime that you've got to spend a lifetime rebuilding. Build with your life. Bring life with your words. And let your speech be something that is pleasing to God. First service didn't get that. That's just for you. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit was a gift to us from God. It says that when Christ gave his life and ascended into heaven, it says that the Holy Spirit came to this earth. He sealed our salvation, but in his sealing of our salvation, he's now present in our life and he leads, he instructs, he convicts, he makes straight the path of a righteous person, one who's in right standing with God. And it says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? It's by consistently giving way to sin instead of consistently giving way to God's voice. Who are you siding with more often? I love that God continues to speak, continues to speak, but some of us for years have just heard this voice that was once dominant and instructing and telling us what to do and how to do it. And we were following and the voice was loud and clear. And then through a series of events or through failure after failure, we no longer respond to the voice of the Lord. We respond to the feelings and satisfaction of the flesh. And it says that a consistent lifestyle of that will grieve, will silence the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that is not what we want to do. The last two verses say it like this. Paul just begins to rapid fire. And he says this. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander you're seeing all these things be put away from you along with all malice. Malice is not a commonly used word anymore, but it's literally the desire to do evil. 
And most of us would instantly say, I don't have that, but it's that thought of just wishing evil upon someone else. Wishing for them to just be destroyed. Wishing for them to just get out of the way. Wishing that the worst would happen to that person because deep down inside, you would be satisfied and pleased if it happened to them. Putting away all malice, he says, be kind to one another. Be kind to each other. And instead of having a hardened heart, he says, be tenderhearted. Be soft, he says, forgiving one another. For Paul to say that we've got to forgive one another, he's speaking to the church. He's suggesting that we might do things to each other that would have to be forgiven of. We can no longer expect the church to be perfect. Why? Because it's got all of us in it. He says, forgive one another. And then he bookends chapter four by saying, just like God through Jesus forgave you. Your identity is that you are a new creation in Christ. And Paul is pleading that we would reflect that through our lifestyle. Jesus loved us so much that he lived a perfect life and he died a death that we deserved so that we could no longer be alienated from him. We would no longer have a hardened heart, that we would no longer be darkened in our understanding. And for some of us in this room, we're still leaving, living in verses 17, 18, and 19, godless, separate from God. But I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking very clear to you right now, saying, it's you, it's you. All you have to do is say, I hear you. And I'm gonna respond to what you're speaking to me. For some of you, that's your response time. For some of you in this room, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus has been a personal letter to you, saying, stop doing this. Stop doing this. Why? Because it's not glorifying God. You're putting on that dead and decaying self again, and you're allowing your identity, who you are, to be shown through that. And he's saying, put off that. Lying, stealing, corrupt talk, the outbursts of anger. He's saying, let it not be so among you. And your opportunity is to respond to the Holy Spirit's leading in this moment as well. I want to pray for all of us right now. Father, I thank you, God, that your word is still alive, that your word is still active, that it still penetrates the heart of mankind, even those that are hardened. So God, first, I pray for those in this room, God, who would acknowledge that they are separate from you, that they have never repented from their sin. They've never turned away from their sin. But God, in this moment, they realize that that's where they're living, that they're living in verses 17, 18, and 19, far from you. But God, as much as they realize that's where they are, they know that that's not where you created them to be. So God, in this moment, God, with, with you as our audience, God, we are surrendering our lives to you. If you're in this room and you're saying, that's me, I want you to agree in your heart, agree in your words right now saying, God, I'm godless. I'm separate from you, but that's not where I want to be. I believe that you died on the cross through your son Jesus for me and his death brought payment for a debt that I could not pay 
The debt that brought eternal separation has been paid so that I can be close to you. So God, for all of those praying that prayer right now, God, I pray that you would forgive them of their sins. God, that you would not just be savior of their life, but you would be Lord of their life. And God, that you would seal it with the Holy Spirit, that you would lead, you would guide, you would instruct, you would train, you would inspire, you would rebuke God, that you would fulfill what your word says that you would do, that you would lead us in righteousness and truth. And God, I lift up all of us in this room. God, who your word has read us very clearly. God, that we would be quicker to respond to your voice and your leading than our fleshly desires. So God, that we would put away corrupt talk, that we would put away unrighteous anger. God, that we would put away deceitfulness and lying and thievery. God, that we would put away unkindness, God, and unforgiveness and malice. God, that all of these things, our old self would truly be our old self. And God, that we would be a pure reflection of a loving savior to a, a harmed and a broken person. But God, that we would be a pure and a godly representative of who you are to mankind. We love you and we honor you and we thank you for everything that you've done today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So Steve and I met in 2016. I lived in Georgia. He is from here. We uh, met, we dated for about nine months. I then decided he's the one. (laughs) So I moved here and we began our life here. I moved here and knew nobody. So when we came to Northwood, and Steve and I talked to Pastor Van, and he said, show up, get involved, serve, give, you know, all those great things. And so it was time to sign up for the small groups. And the first one that I signed up for, my tendency was to want to close off and not really share the things that I was personally going through or had been through. And after, I don't know, maybe the third or fourth week, I saw where I was very much like the rest of the people in the small group. And so that was the start of starting to feel like I could um, just start talking about my journey. And of course, making friends was huge because again, I needed people. That was the first small group. Then I went to Freedom. And that's where I really started letting go of 30 years of some baggage. I was making so many bad choices throughout those 30 years. So I feel like freedom is really the place where I really was just able to let go of 30 years of stuff. Uh, It was during the Book of Romans that I really, and going to the small group that helped me to learn more about the Bible on a personal level and how the things that they talk about in the Bible, how how they relate, you know, in your own personal life. I see myself and my husband, Steve, I want God to just use us wherever we need to be.